You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Today, our topic is, who is Yahweh and where does he come from? And we have just a brilliant scholar. I mean, just having a hard time keeping up with all his Bible passages he was throwing out and names and all this stuff. Mark Smith. Yeah, it may seem like an odd title for a podcast, you know. <laughs> who is this Yahweh? And where does he come from? It's actually not a bad question because, you know, the, the w- once you dig into the Bible a little bit, questions are raised about maybe the complexity of a question like that. And this is what scholars do, and Mark does it as well as anybody. He teaches at Princeton Seminary. He's been there for about a year or so now. And I've known him for, for a few years, and he taught at Yale for a long time and all sorts of stuff like that. But his his PhD is in, you know, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and the ancient Near Eastern world, and looking at all that context and stuff. But one of the books he'll mention this at the end is The Early History of God, which is a lot of what we're talking about today. And that's just a wonderful book. He's written like 15 of them. He's written another one on monotheism and how that arose in ancient Israel and things like that. But this is You know, this is just one of these big topics of looking at the Old Testament in its ancient context. And when you do that with sort of archaeology and other evidence on one hand and the Bible on the other hand, you start forming a picture. And it's a picture that's debated because everything's debated in the Bible. Nothing's certain. But you start seeing patterns and this is the kind of thing that you start, you know, teasing out of the Bible a little bit. Yeah, and I think this might throw people for a loop. I mean, I think it's just a new way of understanding God and how God relates to these other characters in the Bible that, yeah, I just think for me growing up, when I read certain names like Ale or El or Elohim or Baal, or I, I kind of just skipped over them. I didn't think too much about what they are. And we really go in depth, and it's just fascinating to hear a scholar who's dedicated a, a large portion of his career to really just understanding these in a in a way that really flows from him. He, you know, he knows his stuff. And yeah, it makes me a little embarrassed to say, like, how many times did I read these passages when I was younger and pretty much just ignore what it was actually saying because I wanted to get to the part about... The moral you know, of the story. That's right. Yeah. But if, when you read it as historians, you ask different kinds of questions and your eyes are open to some of the differences and, and, and the complexities and the diversities and stuff. So, but there you have it. So, let's get into it, Excellent. Let's do. The psalm ends up with a acknowledgement of God's kingship. He sits on his throne forever, or over, I should say, over the flood forever. And there's also a blessing formula there. Great psalm. But in that psalm, Yahweh is very much like Baal, so much so that scholars used to argue that, in fact, that psalm originally was a Baal psalm. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Let's just jump right in. So, we have in the Bible this cast of characters. And so, as we're talking about who is Yahweh and, and where did he come from, Maybe let's start with just, can you run down this, this cast of characters that we have in the Bible and how they relate to one another? The Bible refers to several gods and goddesses, and most of these gods and goddesses, it, readers get the impression, are bad news for ancient Israel. Namely, that there's only worship of one god, that god is, the name of that god is Yahweh, which is usually translated in Bibles as the Lord, 
the Lord is actually not really a translation of the name Yahweh. It is a substitute, a kind of honorary title to designate Yahweh. The name of Yahweh itself looks like it's from the verb that means to be, and there are various theories about what that actually signifies for ancient Israelites. And there also are alternative explanations that is, alternative proposals for what the root of the name is. So that gets into some murky territory, trying to run down that name. And I'll talk more about Yahweh momentarily, but I want to add that, in fact, the Bible recognizes by name several other gods and goddesses. And I'm going to mention who they are. But before I do, I think it's important to know that the same gods and goddesses are known also outside of the Bible. And thanks to archaeological discoveries made mostly in the 20th century, we now have a whole literature that we can compare and contrast with the Bible that mentions all these gods and goddesses. The primary corpus of texts that provide descriptions of such gods and goddesses is a group of texts that came from a site on the coast, uh, the Mediterranean coast in Syria. The name of the site is Ugarit. It's located today about 100 miles north of Beirut on the coast of Syria. So it's a bit north of ancient Israel, but it does have quite a lot of commonalities with information that we also have in the Bible. So what I'm about to say about these different deities, it's not simply from the Bible. I would add that the information that we have is also not restricted just to the text from this ancient site of Ugarit, but we have other inscriptions closer to ancient Israel, which also refer to these gods and goddesses. So we know that these are live issues, we might say. These deities are live issues for ancient Israel in their own time. So the first deity besides Yahweh I'd like to mention is the god whose name is Ael. And Ael is a, a patriarchal god. He is often represented as seated on a throne. He is described as ruling over the company of the gods and goddesses, what is sometimes called the divine council or the divine assembly, a bit like the gods meeting under the authority of Zeus on Mount Olympus in Greek mythology. Ale's job is essentially to manage, rule the company of the gods and goddesses in their various conflicts and resolutions together to manage the universe. Ale is the oldest god that is active in the pantheon. There are sort of olden gods older than Ale, but Ale is the, he's like the chief executive officer of a company. He oversees everything. No, let me rephrase. Ale is not the chief executive officer. He's really the chairman of the board. The ex chief executive officer is Baal. Baal is known to many readers of the Bible as Yahweh's arch enemy. For example, in the conflict between the prophets of Baal versus Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. Baal really is the chief executive officer in the sense that he is running the world. 
He's not only responsible for the weather, he is a god of precipitation, of rain, thunder, and lightning, a storm god. And those are both symbols of his power, that is the lightning and thunder, he's a powerful god. And the rains are a sign of the fertility uh, that really rejuvenates the world every year through rain. So and Mark, just, just before we go further, I want to be make sure we're clear about Baal is the proper pronunciation of what most people, when we read the Bible, they come across this name that usually pronounced Baal, yeah. B-A-A-L, just so people aren't confused. And and the god Ael, that's E-L. Yeah. I'm not A-I-L. <laughs> Nobody's ailing, but yeah. So, I mean, th- these are common names for gods. And like you're saying, we get this not just from biblical literature, but from this literature of Ugarit and some other places as well, right? Right. Right. Yeah, it's a, these are common names in the ancient world. That's right. Ale, and especially Bale. Now, Bale is really common for a number of reasons. One is his name, as it's used, it really derives from a title that means Lord. And there are many gods or Baal sort of gods with, with the title Baal. There are also gods with other names, but who get Baal as, as a title for them. It, it and sometimes it can be difficult to understand, you know, which is which. But in our corpus of the Ugaritic text, it's not difficult at all. We know uh, it's, they're very clear on this. And I think for the most part, the Bible is, although there have been scholars who have debated whether all these Baals are the same storm god or not, or all these, I should say, all the passages that discuss Baal are the same Baal, so to speak, the storm god of West Semitic or the Ugaritic texts and biblical texts, etc., texts of the region. That's what I mean by West Semitic. This is not an issue for our discussion today, really. Baal is, he, he, in descriptions of Baal, he marches to battle or he flies on a chariot or seems to be flying on a chariot. He is a very mighty warrior. There is no more powerful warrior in the Ugaritic text than Baal. Just a reminder, Ale is not a warrior, or he's not depicted as a warrior in the Ugaritic text, nor is he depicted as a warrior in biblical texts. Uh, there have been some interesting discussions about that issue, whether there are alternative warrior elements about Ale in the Bible. I'm not a big fan of that theory because it the evidence is so meager and not very strong. It's both weak and thin. Well, Baal sounds like, or Baal sounds like Yahweh, the way you describe uh, well, it. Well, it's an interesting question. Baal does sound like Yahweh. There's There are plenty of passages in the Bible, such as Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. And in this psalm, describes Yahweh in a thunderstorm that moves across the Mediterranean Sea and crashes at the Lebanon and then moves inland to the Inter-Lebanon. It's called the Syrion. And then the people in the temple in verse 9 of Psalm 29, usual translations go, and in his temple, I'll say glory. I don't like that translation. I think it really means, and in his temple, all of it, glory is seen, because you see glory in the Bible, you don't say glory. But no matter, the point is, is that the progression across the Mediterranean, hitting the Lebanon, and then the Syrian, and then there's a witness 
of the deity's storm. There's a technical term for an appearance of divinity, theophany, literally meaning God appearance. So Yahweh's theophany is being witnessed by the people, according to verse 9 of Psalm 29. Now that progression perfectly fits Baal as a storm god, who's also recognized as being on the coast and manifesting his thunder and lightning at sites on the coast. Yahweh is also a warrior god in that psalm, or understood to be a warrior god. His voice, the word that's used for voice, is actually being really used to signify thunder. So thunder and lightning are, just as they are for Baal, they are symbols of Yahweh's power as a storm god. But also, I think the implication is that the rains are coming, but that's, that would be more by implication. The psalm ends up with an acknowledgement of God's kingship. He sits on his throne forever, or over, I should say, over the flood forever. And there's also a blessing formula there. Great psalm. But in that psalm, Yahweh is very much like Baal, so much so that scholars used to argue that, in fact, that psalm originally was a Baal psalm. And the reason they thought that is because Lebanon, or that part of Lebanon up there, is not really part of Israel. So it came from somewhere in Lebanon, was borrowed by the Israelites, and was, in a sense, Yahwehized, because Yahweh was also recognized as being a storm warrior god. Mark, can I, can I just, I don't know if it's going to take us too tangentially, but when you're talking about that, so Psalm 29, it's like Yahwehizing these ale... No, Baal. Uh, uh, Baal, sorry. Yeah, the Baal language and descriptions, and we would get that. So I was going to ask about, is do we find similar things with ale? Because I know growing up, you know, we would have called it El. But, uh, you know, in my tradition, it'd be things like El Shaddai. And that's Yahweh. That's what we're talking, we're talking about. Like the God of the Bible is El Shaddai or even Elohim. And I can't help but see that that ale is in there to refer to the God of the Bible. So I'm just, I'm getting a little confused on if ale's this Ugaritic deity, but then it seems to be that the Bible refers to this ale as, and kind of lumps it in with the God of the Bible. I'm trying to distinguish between these here. Okay, well, the, the short version is that Yahweh, for reasons that are not entirely clear, literally manifests the language and imagery of both Baal and Ale. Before I turn to Ale and the resemblances between Yahweh and Ale, let me just mention that Yahweh's original home, according to the Bible at least as scholars analyze it, is not up on the coast, but he comes from the deep south in Edom. So in Judges chapter 5, verses 4 to 5, and it's, the verses are paralleled in Psalm 68. These are two of the oldest texts in the Bible, according to most biblical scholars who work on this. Yahweh comes from the south, and the south is given various names, Edom, Paran, Seir, and even Sinai. And these are way down in the south. They are located in southern Jordan, where it meets the northwest corner of Saudi Arabia today. And so, that is really, in a sense, the starting point for the story of Yahweh 
in our records. That is, the Bible recognizes that Yahweh literally marched from Edom. And it sounds to many people that Yahweh originally was a god from this region who somehow found his way to Canaan, what later becomes known as Israel. And that process is interesting to explore also. And maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later. But the point is that in that, in, in Judges chapter 5, verses 4 to 5, and the parallel in Psalm 68, I think it's verses 8 to 9, Yahweh is a storm god. The precipitation, he's, he's marching, and it causes precipitation. So he's got his own tradition that's separate from the Baal tradition. And many scholars argue that one reason why we have Baal polemic in the Bible is because Yahweh and Baal are too similar as gods. This is different with the god Ale. So let me turn to the god Ale. So Ale polemic is, as far as I can recall, is absent from the Bible. We do not have polemic against the god Ale the way we do for Baal, and also we have for Asherah, which we'll get to in a bit. So, Ale imagery in the Bible. We get, first of all, the title of Ale, Elyon, as we get it in a number of texts. El Elyon, as he's called in Genesis, I think it's 14, 18, with Melchizedek. And elsewhere, Elyon, El Elyon, is a title. And this just, in itself, refers whenever it's used to Elyon is a title meaning most high or very high. He is the he enjoys exalted status. And this seems to reflect his place in the pantheon. El also becomes kind of a generic noun for gods or god I should say, but it's also used in interesting expressions. So for example in Joshua 22:22 there's a statement that Ale of the Gods, or Ale Elohim, is Yahweh, and it's actually repeated. And what this has suggested to some people is that even the very name of Ale has become a title or a way of referring to Yahweh. One case where this becomes quite explicit is with the title that's used, El Shaddai. Now, El Shaddai appears in a number of sources. First of all, what does the whole title mean? So, you have two components to El Shaddai. First, the name El, and secondly, the word Shaddai. Shaddai, the best explanation that still I've seen is that Shaddai means one, the mountain one, or the one of the mountain, and El indeed meets with the divine pantheon or the divine council on top of a mountain, Interestingly enough, in an inscription from a site just north of Jericho across the Jordan River, the site is called Deir Allah, we actually have the epithet Shaddai applied to the gods generally, and they meet in divine council. This is all in the environment. Now, just for people's information, El Shaddai is typically translated in the Bible as God Almighty. And this goes actually back to its Greek translation. The translators did not really seem to know what Shaddai literally meant, and that's not surprising because scholars have also debated what it means. But I still think this idea of Ale of the Mountain is a, is a pretty good interpretation of that title. Now, that title is regularly used for Yahweh, and 
It's very, very interesting to see in Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 3, where God appears to Moses, and he says to Moses, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I appeared to them as El Shaddai, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known. In other words, the patriarchs only ever knew Yahweh as Ale. They were, according to even biblical historiography, this is in Exodus 6.3, but El Shaddai is used elsewhere, for example, in Genesis 17, when Yahweh appears to Abraham, he says, I'm El Shaddai. So they didn't even know who Yahweh was. And the Bible, in terms of structuring its picture of the past, recognizes what historians of religion of ancient Israel think, namely that Ale may have been the original, older way of understanding their God, and that Yahweh, at a relatively early point, but still secondary point, was identified with Ale. You know, it's, Mark, it's interesting that, you know, when when you know, people read the Bible and that term, the Lord or Yahweh, it just seems to be a given, you know, starting in chapter 2 of Genesis, at least. But when you start reading, I guess, clues in the Bible itself, you, you just come up with a, a more complicated picture. And you have to start unraveling this stuff a little bit. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that, you know, for a lot of readers, is that all of these titles, anything that's beneficial, that's in the religious world, titles, imagery, etc., all of those accrue to Yahweh over time, and that the Bible's been written generally to show a kind of harmonious picture where everything positive has accrued, all positive imagery and titles have accrued to Yahweh, and knowledge of other gods gets turned into sort of a polemic against them. So, in a sense, the religious tradition is taking with one hand the positive and with the other hand, pushing away what they perceive as negative. You've just said a lot of things. So let me just see if I'm capturing this. So I think of, we have Baal and we have Ale, and they had a different trajectory here where Baal was a different deity, but it was a storm god. And then Yahweh enters the picture and takes on some of this language of storm god, but they're they're too similar. And so in the biblical text, there's a polemic against Baal, like that's not that's not Yahweh. They're, they're separated. But with Ael, Ael would also have been a deity apart from Yahweh at some point. But we see in the text, are you saying we see in the text that over time Yahweh becomes known? They they become kind of combined in that sense. They get combined at the level, really, even of their identity. Right. Whereas Baal. And Yahweh gets known, we might say, in Baalistic terms, you know, with the titles and imagery of Baal that may not have always been original to Yahweh. We don't know enough about that original profile of Yahweh to be able to sort that out exactly. But then we have we have an Exodus. What I heard you say is we have an Exodus like this explanatory passage that says you guys would have known me before as El Shaddai, but because I hadn't revealed myself yet as Yahweh, surprise, El Shaddai is Yahweh. Is that right? Yeah, and I, and I think that that's actually, I mean, whatever that old moment was in early Israel, and I would probably put this sometime in what biblical readers would regard as the period of the judges, 
Let me add a detail about why I think this is so important to understand ale in the picture, even though for many people, you just don't see it because you just always identify all that with Yahweh, is the actual name of Israel. The very name of Israel contains two elements, and one element is the last two letters in English actually is probably the name Ael. And it probably means something, the whole name probably means something like Ael contends or Ael, not contend is maybe not the best translation. In Genesis 32, Jacob struggles with a divine figure and his name change from Jacob to Israel is explained with the God part as the object rather than the subject, namely, for you have striven, that's what it is, Sarita, you have striven with gods and with men, and the verb is to strive or the like, but the ale element in this kind of folk etymology of the name has been generalized into gods generally, but probably that typically in a personal name the name, if it has a divine element, is the subject of the sentence, and it's a proper name or proper noun and not a generic. So, it looks, if you just look at the name of Israel itself, it looks as if wherever that name comes from and whatever socio-political unit it refers to, their original patron god looks like it was probably Ale originally, and it's Yahweh who's the relative newcomer, probably from the deep south of Edom, and they become identified at some point. So, so two things, Mark. There, I mean, there are there are other Ale names too. They're actually very common, right, in the Old Testament. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of Ale titles strewn. A lot of them are in the Book of Genesis. There are elsewhere as well, Ale Olam, Ale the Eternal One, which some people connect to his relative age. He's always depicted in the Ugaritic text with a white beard. And this imagery for Ale is well known from the Ugaritic texts. And we have the title in the Bible. And some people would even trace this imagery down into chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, where the deity is seated on his throne, just as Ale is in the Ugaritic texts. And he is called the Ancient of Days, the Atik Yomin. So this imagery had a long life, just like the divine council language had a huge long life from, you see it already in the Ugaritic texts, you see it in the Bible, it goes all the way down into Daniel 7, and it's the imagery that informs the last judgment scenes that we have in the Gospels and that people are familiar with today, the idea of God in the heavens who will judge people at the last judgment. Yeah, and even and even the name Daniel. Yes, even the name Daniel is an ale name. Again, the E-L at the end, and the root of the first part of the name of Daniel means to judge, ale judges, and that is actually a very typical role for ale in the sense of generally adjudicating or leading in the divine council. I mean, I'm thinking of all these other names like Ezekiel and Joel, and and, it, and, and I guess the, the what I'm asking is, you know, it, well, I'm not asking. Maybe this well, is well. It's the record of the personal names. Yeah, those are personal names that all have this ale element to them, which suggests that there was a lot of ale, ale worship. Yeah. yeah, and we can contrast that with Baal names or Baal names, 
which there are some which show us that Baal's being worshipped. And we have figures, for example, from the household of Saul, who have names like Mephi Baal and Mary Baal in Chronicles, but the writers of, of Samuel didn't like it, so they changed Baal to Boshet, Mephi Boshet, because Boshet means shame. It's like a shame that he had this name. These seem to be secondarily changed. We have a series of inscriptions written on sherds. We call them ostraca. And from the side of the Samaria, from Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, the so-called Samaria ostraca have quite a high proportion of Baal names, more Baal names than Yahweh names. So it's clear that there is Baal worship, but the Bible seems very aware that this is Baal and therefore it's bad. Whereas in the case of the ale names, there are a lot of ale names and nobody seems to think it's an issue. Hey, normal people, Pete here, just a quick break. First, if you like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes. I could back that up with plenty of Bible verses, but there's just no time. Also, consider supporting our work at Patreon for as little as $1 a month, cheaper than the price of a very bad cup of coffee. You'll have access to videos, early announcements, book clubs, an active Slack group of kindred spirits, and more. And that's patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. Finally, a huge thanks to our producers group at Patreon. They get on calls with us and give us great feedback. If you like what we're doing, thank them. If not, just blame Jared. So thank you to Ryan Morrison, Michelle Chantos, Dave Carlton, Kevin Meng, Teresa Thompson, Philip Gibson, Lelia Fry, Stephen Goldstone, John Thomas, and Michelle Casey. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now back to the podcast. And, and mention a couple of the Yahweh names, like common names in the Old Testament that have this Yahweh part in it. Well, you have... Well, I was going to say Adoniyahu is not the most common Yahweh name in the world. Yahu, it means Yahu or Yahweh is Lord, Adon. How about Ezekiel? Um, not Ezekiel, what am I talking about? Uh, Jeremiah? Jeremiah is a Yahweh name. So a lot of the names in the Bible that end in Yah or start with Yah, these are all Yahweh names. Yah is a, either a short form of Yahweh or an alternative form. It's, it's origins... Yeah, it's not exactly clear how that's to be derived, but it's universally recognized also as the name of Yahweh in the Bible. And there are a lot of those names also. But what's interesting for me is that the awareness that Baal is not Yahweh and is somehow antithetical Yahweh is very high profile in the Bible. The opposite case with Ale. It's as if, from the point of view of biblical memory, Yahweh and Ale were always identified at, you know, w- once you get to the book of Exodus, Exodus 6, chapter 6, verses 2 to 3, but elsewhere in the Bible, you'd never know that there was any consciousness that Ale wasn't Yahweh and vice versa. I rather suspect that this identification took place fairly early on, and it was sort of past a, it was it was prior to any point where it was really seen to be any problem we don't even we don't even know at what rate it took place that is if we some people have taken a kind of regional approach to ale in the bible and in all of these inscriptions and ugaritic texts and they see a lot of ale names or ale language in transjordan material for example in the stories about the prophet 
Balaam in chapters 22 to 24 of Numbers, and that's in Transjordan, across the River Jordan. And I mentioned earlier Shaddaian gods being mentioned in an inscription from across the Jordan near Jericho at a site called Der Allah. And Ale is very well identified at the beginning of that inscription as well. Ale seems to be also in the northern part of Israel on this side of the Jordan, what's called sometimes Cisjordan, as opposed to Transjordan, that is the central hill country area. The question of how well Ale is attested in the south in Judah is an interesting problem. So it may be that the rates at which this identification with Yahweh, it may have taken place at different rates in different places and how it all took place, we don't know. No one wrote a treatise, a history of religion treatise, that tells us all how this happened. It would have been nice. It would have been nice, but all we have are the remains of the day. But you'd be out of a job then if they did that. So No, no, I'd I'd work on something else. Yeah, we'd we'd make something up. So, okay, so I want to pull back from this just for one second. Baal is under Ale's authority. Right. Uh, yeah, keep, it's a little complicated. Keep going. Okay, what I mean is that, like, they're not on equal par, but, you know, Ale is this god who's sort of off someplace with a white beard and is sort of like the chief executive officer, but doesn't actually do a lot of stuff. No, he's the chairman of the board. I think Bale's the chief, you know, if you think of the chief executive officer as involved in the day-in-day operation of everything, okay. Bale's more, for me, like the chief executive officer. Or like a provost versus the president of a college or something. Yeah, or yeah. Something. I mean, the provost, <laughs> Ale is out. Ale's out doing fundraising for the okay, universe. Okay, so, so was there a time, and in, in, in I guess, is, is there biblical evidence for a time when Yahweh had the same relationship to Ale as Baal has with Yale, uh, with Ale? Does that make sense? No, I want you to rephrase that a little bit is, more. Is, was there a point in time where Ale was in charge of Yahweh, so to speak? Where they were separate, but there was a pecking order. Yeah, there is There is a very well-known passage. Maybe this is what you have in mind. The head of there, There's a great passage in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 to 9. And I'm going to try to read this slowly, but before I do, let me sort of set it up a little bit. This little piece in verses 8 to 9, first start off by talking about the Most High. I mentioned this title of Ailes earlier, Elyon, and this figure Most High is going to dole out different countries to different gods, and then we're going to hear that Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob. So, Yahweh gets one of these allotments from Most High, who looks like Ale. So, in that scenario, Yahweh sounds like simply one of the many gods, who are, say, gods of various nations. In modern terms, we'd call them national gods. And Most High is the one who sort of oversees the whole arrangement, suggesting that Yahweh is ultimately under the regime of Most High. So, here's how the quote goes, and I have to explain one detail after I read this. Is that okay? Sure. When the Most High, that's Elyon, gave to the nations their inheritance. When he separated humanity, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. Literally, the sons of gods, or we might might translate divine beings or deities. The next verse goes, For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, 
his allotted heritage. So you get this overall picture where El Elyon is over the whole schema of things and Yahweh is one of several divine beings in the schema of things. I have to add that divine beings is the reading that is in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible uh, that was done in Alexandria. This reading also appears in one of the Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts of the book of Deuteronomy. And it's actually, I think, adopted in the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV translation. I'm just checking right now to make sure. I think that's right. Yes, it is. They say, according to the number of the gods, and they tell you in a footnote that the traditional Hebrew text reads according to the sons of Israel or the Israelites, and that reading is found in some of the other versions. And what it looks like to an awful lot of scholars is that looked too polytheistic, the old reading that you find in the, in the Septuagint and in the Dead Sea Scroll fragment seemed too polytheistic and some editor changed it to the sons of Israel and it just so happens that the traditional number of the sons of Israel and the traditional numbers of the gods is the same number. So it was an exegetical move as well as a sort of censorship move. That is, both were 70 according to the traditional number. There are 70 gods in the world. There are 70 nations. This is sort of like the, the, what we see in the table of nations in Genesis is sort of a 70-nation schema. And this is also the number of the Israelites, generally speaking, given at the beginning of Exodus, I think in chapter 1. I think it's also given in Genesis 46. So, that writer who changed the reading was doing it in a really smart way, aware of, of what that tradition was about, about the number of the gods, by supplying a comparable reference with a comparable number in the traditions. This is a very interesting uh, move there. But it's just to say that, yes, indeed, this passage seems to reflect an older understanding, but one should remember that it was probably interpreted early enough perhaps even by the author of the poem in Deuteronomy 32 that probably had this kind of old, this is actually a kind of a, an alternative creation account in small, in Nuche, compared to the Genesis 1 and 2 creation accounts. This is yet an alternative creation account that was probably out there, traditional. The writer of Genesis, I mean of Deuteronomy 32, picks this up uses it, but probably is interpreted most high there now already as a title of Yahweh, because it doesn't say El Elyon, it simply says Elyon, and probably maybe the tradition that that writer had received is that it, this was always had always been a reference to Yahweh uh, without really realizing that maybe it wasn't originally Yahweh, but that was originally El. Okay. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
I want to maybe, if we can, take a few minutes and, and round out this cast of characters here. So this has all been extremely fascinating. You, you mentioned earlier this other deity, Asherah. And so I wanted to maybe see if we could circle back. And, and how, does, how does that god fit into what we've said so far? So first of all, most importantly, not a god, but a goddess. Asherah is a goddess. She's mentioned a few times in the Bible, Asherah with a capital A as a personal name or proper noun in the books of Kings is where the clearest references to her name. Interestingly enough, there is also a common noun. We'd say Asherah with a small a, often with a definite article, the Asherah. And this is a religious symbol. It, from the descriptions in the Bible or references to this in the Bible, this is some sort of symbolic tree. That is, it, it's not literally a tree, but it is, it is symbolized as a tree, probably denoting, you know, natural fertility. So many different deities, by the way, are fertility deities. That is, Baal promotes fertility through his reigns, and Asherah is symbolic of fertility in the tree. Many beneficial gods and goddesses are supporters of fertility. There's no one fertility goddess, so to speak. Now, back to Asherah. The symbol of the Asherah is much more attested in the Bible than the name. So, that's just something I want us to bear in mind. What do we know about Asherah outside of the Bible? She's well attested in the Ugaritic texts. She is an older generation goddess who is the spouse of the god Ale. They're a couple, and she is supportive of Ale's regime or Ale's rule. She cooperates with him. They work together on one occasion to promote a god, actually on two occasions, to promote a god as king of the gods. Interestingly enough, in competition with Baal, so even the motif of competition between Ale and Baal is something in the Ugaritic text, which some people suggest is being echoed a little bit in the conflict between Yahweh and Baal. That is, Yahweh, who's identified with Ale, has a certain conflict with Baal in the Bible. But in any case, Asherah is a major goddess in our Ugaritic texts, and so she's a major member of the cast of characters, divine characters, that we see in the Ugaritic texts, and also in the Bible. We don't get a lot of obvious takeover of her imagery in the Bible, but there are a couple of places. And one place that I would recommend is found in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 3, we have a description of wisdom. And wisdom in Hebrew is chokhmah. Chokhmah is a feminine singular noun. And she is said to be a tree of life to all who take hold of her, and those who do so are, as the Hebrew goes, those who do so are mi'ushar. Now, mi'ushar, you read the translations, is sometimes translated happy or blessed or so on, but it should be recognized that that is the same root as the name of Asherah, and she's characterized in terms of a tree that gives life. And so many scholars think that this could be, that wisdom, in a sense, is a Yahwistic counter-advertisement to Asherah and her tree. 
So there may be in this image some takeover of Asherah's associations with the figure of Yahweh and Yahweh's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. You want more? <laughs> so what sparked a lot of interest in Asherah among a huge number of biblical scholars was the discovery of several inscriptions located in the south, one in Judah itself, from a cave in Judah called Kirbet el Kom, and then further inscriptions, and several inscriptions in this case, Kirbet el Kom, it's really just one inscription that is central for the Asherah question, but many inscriptions found at yet another site, way down in the Negev, at a site called Kintilat Ajrud. And Kintilat Ajrud is at least geographically some sort of outpost. Some people think that it's a, a stopover place for travelers. Others think it's a military outpost. It could have served as both. It's not really clear to people. But what was found there, both on plaster wall inscriptions and on sherds, that is ostraca, was a blessing formula. And the blessing formula basically states, I hereby bless you by Yahweh and by his Asherah. And many scholars immediately latched onto this as, as evidence that Yahweh and Asherah were a couple in ancient Israel, just as Ael and Asherah were a couple at Ugarit. Some would say with the identification of Yahweh and Ael, in a sense, Yahweh got the girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I didn't make it up. I think it was Saul Olean who said something to this effect. Maybe, you know, maybe. You know, the, the thing is what that makes sense of, I mean, a little bit. Maybe we can tie this together with these figurines that have been found archaeologically in, you know, the period of the monarchy, the divided monarchy in Judah that are, that seem to be depictions of Asherah. Well, I, you're probably talking to the wrong guy when it comes to that question. I'm somewhat agnostic on this question. I've read a lot of the literature from both archaeologists and iconography people, as well as biblical scholars and so on, and it's not really clear that we know that it's specifically Asherah. It's a, it's a reasonable supposition, but that's what it is. There are other goddesses out there uh, in the neighborhood. Um, Astarte is out there, uh, well known from also from the Ugaritic text, but also from Phoenician inscriptions. We have yet another goddess, Anat, also known from Ugarit. And Astarte and Anat are, are, are warrior goddesses, just as Baal is a warrior god. And so some people do like to see those female figurines as being, tying them more to Asherah because they think that Asherah might be more of a motherly figure. And some people would see the large breasts, etc., on these figurines as denoting a more motherly figure. You know, it's it's quite possible. I, am, I, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that, that's, and that's a very fair point. But the, the presence of Asherah and Asherah poles and trees in the monarchic stories, it suggests a prominence. Oh, absolutely. Right? I, I so there's something that. going on there, that. even at that point in time, where it's not just, it might not just be a random connection or latching on to, quote, a foreign god. It may be part of Israelite tradition. Oh, absolutely. Part These are all, no, I mean, I think Ale, as in the name 
Israel is native to the region. I actually think Baal is native to the region. I think Asherah and Astarte are probably native to the region. And what really is interesting is it's Yahweh, in a sense, who's the relative newcomer, which our Exodus story actually embodies for us at a narrative level. But we forget that Israel, probably the majority of Israelites in the early period, you know, they probably had no problem with all of these different deities. And that's exactly what Elijah tells them in 1 Kings 18. How long will you go literally on two branches as if to say, you know, you, you can't have both. And they probably traditionally had both. And that was probably the traditional religion so, of early So Israel. much of the God talk in the Bible, if I can put it this way, I mean, it's, I mean, the Bible is such a diverse book, it's hard to capture all of it. But we are seeing reflections much later in a process of development, let's say, in terms of how God is depicted and understood. Yeah. And it gets rather complicated. I think. <laughs> anyway, well, listen, Mark, we're coming to the we're coming to the end of our time here, and this has been absolutely fascinating. Wondering, is there any project that you're working on at the time? Maybe something that's coming out soon, or what's going on in your life here? Yeah, thanks. I'd like to mention two things, especially for people who are listening to this. Um, I'm I've just finished up a book that's really meant for a broader audience, not all the technicalities in the world. The book is about the Garden of Eden story. It's entitled, The Genesis of Good and Evil. Subtitle, The Fallout, with the word out in parentheses, The Fallout and Original Sin in the Bible. That's coming out with Westminster John Knox Press in early 2019. And it's relatively short. It's probably going to come in at under 150 pages, and it's it's fairly readable, and uh, it's trying to explain what's really going on with Genesis 3. Uh, you know, uh, this is a story that has no word for sin, no words for disobedience, no word for punishment, no word for transgression, but that's exactly how Christian readers have always understood the story. So the question is, how did it come to be read that way? And is it entirely wrong? And this book is going to try to explain how that traditional Christian reading of the story is, in a sense, achieved by the time we get to the flood story, that the Cain and Abel story, which has been written in tandem with the Garden of Eden story. They're connected stories, but readers usually stop at the end of Genesis 3. You need to read Genesis 4 to understand the fallout of the decisions made by Adam and Eve in the garden without the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't have the knowledge of good and evil, but clearly Cain and Abel are the symbolic fallout and representation of its being played out. And then you get to the beginning of the flood story and we hear that humanity is evil in, in its thoughts or uh, literally formations. This is right before the flood story in chapter 6 verses 5 to 8. And just in case people miss that message, they add that quirky little piece in Genesis chapter 6, 1 to 4, just before, to explain how awful it all is. And I try to unpack all of that so that people can see both fairly what really is in the biblical text, and yet how, from a larger perspective, reading over chapters 3, 4, 
and primarily six, that the Christian, the Christian reading is actually not that far off base. And in fact, it's anticipated in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they read back the line about evil of humanity in their thoughts from Genesis 6 back to the Garden of Eden story. So, this was not something that Christians made up, but was already an early Jewish exegetical tradition, even though I think that reading falls out in later rabbinic material. So, there's a lot there to, to, you know, for anybody interested in the Garden of Eden story, I think that this, well, I'm the author, so of course I think this, I think this will be a pretty good 150 pages, I don't believe you, unless it's like the font is like six or something, or how are you going to do all that? Uh, two. Good luck. <laughs> no, no, it's, I, it's, it's, a, it's about as succinct as I know how to get. Okay. I've written a few of these books that are not as long and more accessible. I did a book in 2014 called How Human Is God? seven questions about God and humanity in the Bible, and they're sort of select topics that are hard topics for people. There's an, a lovely chapter on Satan. If you like evil, then you'll like reading about Satan. <laughs> a lovely chapter on Satan, okay. Yeah, so it's, and it's got a chapter, it's got a chapter on, on suffering and, and chapters on God's bodies in the Bible. People don't think that God has bodies, but God has bodies in the Bible and has, in fact, three different types of bodies in the Bible. So, all these questions are discussed in How Human is God. Mm -hmm. I would just like to mention, not because I really want your audience to really read it, but it's part of my identity, and that is my wife, the archaeologist Elizabeth Blocksmith, and I are working on a massive commentary project on the Book of Judges for the Hermeneia Commentary Series. We hope to finish Volume 1 by the end of this year. And it only goes down to chapter 10, verse 5, but it's already standing at about 1,500 pages. So Now, that's the Mark Smith I know. Well, well. you know, I, I didn't want you to feel disappointed. Um, <laughs> but I've tried to sort of add to my traditional, you know, ex excruciatingly detailed kind of work, a kind of parallel track of books that are meant to reach out to more people it isn't to it's 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 to use the scholarship that we've learned, but to put it out there in a way that doesn't make it impossible for people to get at it. And that's what we're about here. And I you know we would encourage you to do that because I think you know people people want to get it and they want to read stuff. So well, listen, Mark, this has been a lot of fun, and I feel like we're scratching the surface. But maybe we can do this again and sort of expand this and go in other directions with this fascinating topic of Israelite religion and God and all that. If you would allow me, I would just mention that I do have this older book. It was updated in 2002 that is called The Early History of God, which is exactly what we've been talking about today. And there's a follow-up book to that called The Origins of Biblical Monotheism that came out in paperback in 2003. Um, there are, I have some other books about God, but if you get through those first two, you probably deserve a medal. <laughs> Indeed. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Mark. No problem. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Just wanted to remind everyone, please check out the website, thebiblefornormalpeople.com. 
where you can find content. And uh, yeah, lots of good stuff going on there. Join the comments section. We It's actually pretty clean. You moderate that pretty well. I do. That's yeah. good. And I, lots of content. We don't moderate Pete's writing as much. No, so we should. Somebody has to. Who knows where that's I need adult go. supervision. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. See ya. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.